This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, inflation rises and so does the risk of recession. Plus more evidence from January 6th shows that former President Trump and his allies knew their plot to overturn the election was illegal. The lawmakers investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol and witnesses to that day warned that former President Trump and his allies pose a clear and present danger to American democracy. Former President Donald Trump and other political allies appear prepared to seize the presidency in 2024. Last week's hearings revealed shocking new details about how close we came to a potential act of horrific violence. Approximately 40 feet, that's all there was. 40 feet between the vice president and the mob. We learned more about the extraordinary pressure the former president exerted on his vice president to overturn the 2020 election. Despite top aides telling him the scheme was unconstitutional and his claims of voter fraud were bogus. If he's become detached from reality, if he really believes this stuff. We'll talk with one of the investigators, California Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. Plus, the Federal Reserve signaled it will hike interest rates at the most rapid pace in decades to fight inflation that is running at a 40-year high. I'm using every lever available to me to bring down prices for the American people. But is the president powerless? And can the country avoid a recession? We'll hear from the director of the National Economic Council, Brian Deese, and the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland, Loretta Mester. Then, vaccinations for the youngest Americans are set to begin this week. We'll ask former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb about the rollout. And finally, as Americans observe Juneteenth, we'll hear from author and historian Ibram Kendi. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We have a lot to get to today, including some long-awaited COVID news finalized just yesterday. Nearly 20 million children will finally have access to coronavirus vaccines after the CDC approved emergency use in infants, toddlers, and preschoolers. Relief for parents, but there is more economic anxiety. Fears of a recession are piling on top of struggles with inflation. The Federal Reserve hiked interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point in the single largest increase in nearly three decades. But we begin with a crisis in our American democracy. The investigation into the January 6th attack and the elaborate scheming that led up to it. Lawmakers and witnesses are warning that the threat is not over. 
For more on what we learned and what's next in the hearings, here's CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarlane. On this vote, the an unprecedented six, pressure campaign against a sitting vice president ended with Mike Pence in an underground loading dock beneath the Capitol for four hours January 6th. He'd been rushed into safety from the U.S. Senate chamber, and at one point, insurgents were just 40 feet away. A confidential informant from the Proud Boys told the FBI that the Proud Boys would have killed Mike Pence if given a chance. That day, he refused to leave. The vice president did not want to take any chance that um, the world would see the vice president of the United States fleeing the United States Capitol. Earlier that day, the president personally pressured Pence one last time before the electoral vote. Witnesses say he called Pence a wimp. In a speech Friday, the former president denied it. I never called Mike Pence a wimp. I never called him a wimp. But again, asserted Pence could have stopped the official certification of the electoral votes. I said, well, what is he, a robot? He's a human conveyor belt. The committee argued the already violent mob was egged on further by Trump's mid-afternoon tweet that Pence lacked courage. No I'm way. telling you, if Pence came, we're going to drag mother through the streets. A series of White House lawyers and aides described an elaborate, weeks-long effort to strong-arm Pence into executing a scheme devised by California lawyer John Eastman to reject some of the electoral votes and steal the election. White House lawyers testified the president and Eastman both knew the plan was bogus and unlawful. A Trump White House aide described a call to Eastman. I said, are you out of your effing mind? I said, you're going to cause riots in the streets. The committee has two hearings planned for the week ahead, including one in which they're expected to argue that Donald Trump tried to interfere with local election officials, including in Georgia. And CBS News has learned the committee also has a team investigating the role played by far-right groups, including their efforts to plot and plan ahead of the attack. Margaret? Scott, thank you. We now want to go to Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California. She is in San Jose. Good morning to you. You're one of the investigators on this select committee. And I think one of the most powerful moments uh, was when the retired conservative judge, Judge Ludig, said that he sees a clear and present danger today. He said there could be further attempts to subvert American democracy in 2024. What exactly is the threat you see? Well, I think uh, Judge Ludig said it very well. And by the way, he is a very conservative uh, man, once considered by Republicans for the Supreme Court. Uh, I think his concern, and I share it, is that the former president is continuing <clears throat> on his campaign to undercut um, confidence in the election system. Uh, they are installing a loyalist. Uh, who say that the election was stolen in states who are going to count the votes. They clearly tried uh, to get the vice president to throw the actual votes out and replace electors with the losing candidate. And it looks like uh, that's uh, in the works for the next election as well. It's a grave concern. So to be clear, there are about 100 Republican candidates for office right now who are repeating that they are election deniers. They are repeating some of what President Trump still claims. At least five of them have won their primaries. Have you found any direct links between any of those candidates and the grift that you have been tracking? Well, we are going to release additional information uh, 
I've got the staff working on it right now. Obviously, the hearings are a couple of hours each, and you can't lay out all the information that's been compiled. So I know there's been substantial interest in uh, the uh, the big ripoff, and uh, we will provide additional information uh, to the public in, in soon. You're saying establishing direct links between those individuals standing for election to office now and the scheme you're laying out. Not necessarily. We will lay out what we have, mm -hmm. and uh, people can look at it. I, I don't want to just pop off irresponsibly here. Uh, your colleague on the committee, uh, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, said on uh, another network this morning that he just received a death threat against him, his wife, and his five-month-old right. child for the work he's doing. Right. Um, he said there is violence in the future. Do you agree that you have a fear of political violence, and have you received threats? Well, I don't want to go into the threats I've received. I think it just encourages more of them. But it's very concerning uh, that Adam and his wife and his little baby were threatened. I saw the um, the threat. It was a written threat. Uh, we saw that uh, Republican Congress and very conservative Representative Crenshaw was roughed up uh, over the weekend at a Republican uh, meeting because he was not conservative enough. And I think that's uh, what the former president has unleashed here. Uh, you know, when he sent out the tweet uh, attacking his vice president, he already knew that the violence was underway. The only uh, conclusion you can mm -hmm. reach is that he intended to, to accelerate that violence against uh, the former vice president. So we're in a very rough time in America right now. And we, all of us, elected officials, but also just Americans and their neighbors need to stand up for uh, the rule of law and against political violence. It's not what America is about. Mm -hmm. Well, for the busy American people who may not have been watching the hearings as closely as we were, exactly what is the end game here? Are you laying out a roadmap for the Department of Justice to ultimately try to prosecute the former president? We are doing what we were asked to do when the committee was formed, which is to find the truth lay it out, and we will also be making legislative recommendations. For example, the Electoral Count Act was violated. Uh, Dr. Eastman admitted as much, uh, but we think we can tighten that up so it's less susceptible to abuse. Um, we're working, especially uh, Liz Cheney and I are working on that. The Department of Justice has to make its own decision. Uh, we're laying out facts. They can see it, but I'm sure they have access to other information because they've got grand juries meeting with various defendants. Uh, we are going to be um, helpful to them in terms of specific information that they wish from the, our own investigation. But they've got it. It's not the role of Congress to decide who gets prosecuted. Well, a number of your committee members, your fellow committee members, have criticized Attorney General Garland for not moving faster. So they do want to see some kind of action here. And there was this letter was from the cool. Justice Department asking for transcripts and saying that your committee failure to immediately hand them over was complicating their investigation. Exactly what is going on here? Well, that was kind of we were surprised by that, frankly. And uh, we will engage. We're not going to be an obstacle uh, to the Department of Justice prosecution of individuals. We're in the middle of putting uh, these hearings together. The staff is working, I mean, incredibly hard along with the members of Congress where uh, we will 
get uh, you know particular information that they need over to them in an orderly way, uh, you know certainly by by the beginning of next month. By the beginning of next month, uh, in the next week, you have a number of uh, Republican officials from state local governments coming, including Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers, who said he had been pressured by. The, president, the former president's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and by the former president himself to retroactively change Arizona law to choose a different slate of presidential electors. He also has said he received emails from Ginny Thomas to reverse Trump's loss. And she is the wife, of course, of sitting Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Will you uh, ask Bowers about that link to Thomas? Well, I'm not going to step on the the. Uh, committee's lines for the hearing. But obviously, as you know, we have invited uh, Jenny Thomas uh, to come in and and visit with the committee, answer our questions. And uh, we've received actually additional information uh, when we got evidence from the Eastman uh, emails uh, that have now been ordered released by Judge Carter in California. <clears throat> so we have questions for her and we may have questions for him as well. Will Jenny Thomas appear? Do you need to subpoena her? And will her husband appear? Well, we've asked her to appear. She It was a private letter. She decided to disclose it, which is her right to do. And she said publicly that she looks forward to coming in and talking to us. So I take her at her word that she intends to come in and we look forward to talking to her. Congresswoman Lofgren, thank you for your time, and we will be watching. Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Stay with us. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We go now to former FDA commissioner and current Pfizer board member, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who joins us from Westport, Connecticut this morning. Happy Father's Day to you, doctor. Thank you. Um, And I've been asking you for years now when my children were ever going to be able to get a vaccine. Uh, And now we know they're actually being shipped out. Um, But this is a pretty unique rollout for these youngest of Americans. Um, In fact, children under the age of three can't go to these mass vaccination sites that we've seen for older people. Um, How complicated is rolling this out to the youngest Americans going to be? 
Well, more complicated than other age segments. I think it's going to be a little bit more of a slow rollout um, relative to what we've seen in past uh, rollouts with the other age groups. There are going to be pharmacies that are vaccinating children. CVS is going to move it into their pharmacies, but they're only moving it into the pharmacies with advanced care providers with their minute clinics. Um, you're probably not going to see clinics stood up. Maybe around children's hospitals, you'll see some clinics stood up. But most people are probably going to get vaccinated in their pediatrician's offices. And it's going to take a little bit more time to get the vaccine into those local settings because it's more difficult to vaccinate a child who is very young. You need people who are specially trained to do that. And so you want, you want the settings to be appropriate. The White House advisor, Dr. Ashish Jha, uh, briefed this week, and he said almost 50,000 children under the age of five have been hospitalized due to COVID infections, a quarter of them in the ICU. So really directly disputing the idea that kids don't get that sick. But then when we look at the orders here, 10 million doses made available by the government, just short of 4 million were actually ordered. That indicates perhaps a low level of uptake. Does that concern you? Look, it's continued to concern me that we haven't seen a lot of uptake among children generally. Only about 30 percent of kids ages 5 to 11 have been vaccinated with two doses. That's lower than what the initial estimates are. Right now, there are surveys showing that about 20 percent of parents plan to vaccinate children under the age of five. I suspect it may end up being lower than that. I think as prevalence declines going into the summer, a lot of parents may choose to take a wait-and-see attitude and reconsider this in the fall. So I would suspect that, you know, uptake's going to be pretty slow. I think the 4.98 or 3.98 million doses that have been ordered so far is a reflection of that fact. I think over time we're going to see more kids get vaccinated. But this is a serious disease in children. More than 1,000 kids have died, about 440 under the age of four. Um, we've seen, as you said, tens of thousands of hospitalizations in this age segment. Um, and this isn't a benign illness in a lot of kids healthy kids as well as kids with a lot of comorbid illness. And we're still seeing tens of thousands of hospitalizations every week in that pediatric age segment. And the final point I'll just say is that COVID is a much different disease in, in children who are immune naive versus children who have some prior immune exposure. So if you can gain some prior immune exposure through vaccination, when a child is eventually going to confront this infection, and most people eventually over the course of their lifetime are going to get this infection, it's a much different disease once you've had that prior immune exposure and have some baseline immunity against this, this infection. So I hear you saying it's not that your kid won't get sick if they get the shot. It's that they will not necessarily be hospitalized, right? They'll have more baseline right. immunity. They'll have some T-cell protection. They'll have memory B-cells that can protect them in that setting. Okay. I, look, every part of this pandemic has become politicized in some way. Um, and there was this back and forth between the White House and the state of Florida, the governor there, Ron DeSantis, who, whose state is actively dissuading children from being vaccinated. And um, there was this back and forth over not ordering vaccine supplies. What is this about? And he's claiming the trial data was abysmal and it should not have gotten FDA authorization. He's not a doctor. You're a doctor. Tell me what's your view here. Well, look, th these tr vaccines have gone through robust clinical studies. We have a lot of experience with these vaccines now in children, children ages 5 to 11. This got a unanimous vote from a pretty diverse set of advisors at the FDA, 21-0, and a unanimous vote from CDC. So I think people should feel confident and the safety and effectiveness of both of these vaccines. I think there's really two questions on the table with respect to the state of Florida. Are they right to actively discourage vaccination 
Um, and did they take steps to actively impede the ability of physicians in that state to get access to the vaccine? I think they're wrong to actively discourage vaccination. They could have taken a neutral stance and just merely said we're not recommending the vaccine for children. Instead, they affirmatively opposed the vaccine. I believe they're their only jurisdiction to do that. Other countries that aren't recommending the vaccine haven't actively opposed vaccination. They haven't said that kids shouldn't get vaccinated. With respect to the second question about the access to the vaccine for providers, um, I don't think that they're actively impeding the ability of pediatricians in the state to get the vaccine. They're just not facilitating that. And this is a position that they said they would take all along. They articulated this much earlier in the year. What's happening in every other state is the states really act as an intermediary, taking possession of the vaccine from the CDC and then redistributing it to physicians within that state. And so what other states did were they pre-ordered vaccine. In the state of Florida, they're not playing that role. They told physicians you're going to have to direct order from the CDC. And because of that, no pre-orders were placed. Physicians were only able to place orders once this was approved. So the state of Florida was the only state that wasn't able to get pre-orders in. And the first shipments that went out were those pre-orders. Now, the White House has taken steps to prioritize the orders that have come in from doctors in Florida. About 20,000 have come in as of yesterday. So they'll be getting vaccine this week. To be clear, it's an emergency use authorization. Private industry can't buy this directly. The government has to be involved, correct? That's right. So in the state of Florida, physicians are going on to the website, the Florida state website, and putting in orders. It's effectively through the state. I mean, the state's acting as a broker. Those orders are then going into CDC, but the state is not taking possession. And and what's Mm -hmm. happening in other states is that they are taking possession of the vaccine and then redistributing it. And a lot of states have chosen to do that because they want to make sure there's equitable distribution. They want to get early supply. They want to be able Mm -hmm. to target a certain certain parts of the state. In Florida, they said, we don't think people should be getting this vaccine and we're going to play no role in facilitating that access. So they're not blocking access. They're just not facilitating that access. Right. No. uh, Interesting perspective from you, Dr. Gottlieb. Always love having you on the program. We turn now to our economic challenges. CBS News senior national correspondent Mark Strassman has more on how we got here. If your paycheck feels smaller, it probably is. Our economy is racing red hot. With widespread worry, it's careening toward a cliff. We have both the tools we need and the resolve that it will take to restore price stability. But beyond raising interest rates, there's much the Fed can't control. The multiple drivers behind the highest rate of inflation in 40 years. Like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, now almost in its fourth month. Its global impact on the prices of minerals and metals, food and fuel. Russian troops have blockaded or stolen Ukrainian wheat and corn. Corn futures trade at $8 per bushel, the highest price in a decade. And most conspicuously, the war's impact on gas prices. At roughly $5 a gallon, the average price of U.S. gas is $2 higher than it was a year ago, with a cascading impact throughout our economy. Take poultry prices, up almost 17% year to year roughly double the rate of inflation. Farmers need gas for equipment, transportation, even fertilizer. They're paying more, so you're paying more for chicken. Another inflationary pressure, ongoing supply chain issues, an outgrowth of the pandemic. Demand dwarfs supply still. Take China, makers of the world's cheap goods. Its zero COVID policies have shut down many of its manufacturing centers, including, at one time, much of Shanghai, its financial hub. U.S. car buyers feel it. Too few options on the lot. 
New cars up almost 14% in a year, used cars up 16%. Inflation's also high because of a competitive labor market. The jobless rate is under 4%, with almost two available positions for every job seeker. One way employers compete for scarce workers, raise wages. And yet, despite everything costing more, Americans keep spending right through the price increases. A combination of pandemic cabin fever and deep pockets. Washington pumped out $6 trillion in stimulus in two years, including putting checks in the hands of consumers. And as a country, we have money to burn. $2.3 trillion in excess savings. What isn't clear? Whether inflation has peaked or if rising interest rates will slow growth too dramatically and trigger a recession. And then there's the battle of inflation psychology, consumer confidence, something the Fed can help shape if not control. Can its policies and messaging help balance supply and demand, given the widespread belief out there that with inflation, things could get worse before they get better? Margaret? Mark Strassman, thank you. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We're joined now by Brian Deese. He is the director of President Biden's National Economic Council. Good morning and welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for having me. You have an incredible challenge on your hands. Yes, the jobless rate is low, but wage growth not keeping pace with inflation. What do you say to Americans who are thinking that they might need a second job to pay their bills? Well, it is an uncertain moment, and we face real challenges, global challenges. Uh, inflation is a global challenge, 9% in the UK, over 8% uh, in Europe. But we also have real strengths here at home. And so what I would say is we need to navigate through this transition in a way that gets us to stable growth without giving up all of the incredible economic gains that we've made. You mentioned the jobless rate at 3.6%. We've also seen household balance sheets strengthened over the course of this period. Congressional Budget Office predicts that high inflation will persist until 20. 24. The Treasury Secretary has said it will stay higher than the originally forecast 4.7%. When does it come down? How much time are you talking about? Well, prices are unacceptably high right now. And that's why the president has said we need to make this our top economic focus and do everything that we can to get them down. Most independent forecasters, the blue chip, uh, the Federal Reserve, as you say, see inflation beginning to moderate over the course of this year. But our focus is on what are the steps, what are the policies that we can take? And the single most impactful thing that we could do right now is to work with Congress to pass legislation 
that would lower the costs of things that families are facing right now, like, like prescription drugs. We could lower the cost of prescription drugs by allowing Medicare to negotiate better prices. That would actually lower federal spending, and it would lower the cost that people pay. The president said this week in a rare interview that he actually has the votes to do it. Where's the deal? When's the vote? Well, lowering prescription drug costs is one piece. Lowering utility costs by providing tax incentives for energy is another piece. But equally important, lowering the federal deficit mm -hmm. by enacting long overdue tax reform. If we can do a package like that, we can move forward in the near future. It will not only help in lowering prices, but it will send a signal to the markets and the global economy that the United States is really deadly serious about taking on this. Hiking taxes economy. isn't going to change the price of milk. When and how are you actually putting forward this package? The package has been uh, debated. It's been worked through. Uh, it failed back when Build Back Better's version of it. So if inflation is the number one priority right now, when are you scheduling a vote to do the things you just laid out? We're working very closely with congressional leadership, with Senate leadership on that. Uh, Senator Schumer is working with his caucus to try to get a final package in place. And we're hopeful that we'll see progress on that in the coming weeks. So in the coming weeks, you think you can get this done on a party line vote before September? We're hopeful we can move forward on that and other uh, priorities in Congress as well. There's a bill on semiconductors, which I know you've talked about on this program, computer mm -hmm. chips. The lack of uh, affordable and available computer chips has driven up prices across the economy, including in things like automobiles. We're hopeful that we can move that as well uh, before the August recess. That would provide some real relief to the economy as well. Despite all of what you laid out, um, and I know the president said recession is not inevitable, it, it seems increasingly probable. Uh, the conference board put out their survey this week. It shows eight out of 10 global CEOs now expect a recession within the next 12 to 18 months. So what power does the president have to stop that kind of contraction? Well, I think what, where we are in the economy right now is in a transition. And I spoke to CEOs this, over the course of the past week from sectors across the economy, and they're figuring out how to navigate this transition. Some of this is exactly what we need to see. They're planning uh, around a recession. Well, they're planning around transitions in our economy. People are buying less goods, be, uh, uh, spending time at home. They're spending more on services. That mm -hmm. creates some real challenges for some companies and some uh, CEOs. What I would say is that uh, not only is a recession not inevitable, but I I think that a lot of people are underestimating those strengths and the resilience of the American economy. But shouldn't you level with the American public and just say we are in uncharted waters? I mean, even the Federal Reserve chair said this week there are things beyond his control. He can't control the price of gasoline. He can't control the war in Europe. He can't control COVID. He has a limited set of tools. And so do you. Is the president powerless here? Absolutely not. Look, we face unprecedented global circumstances, a global pandemic and a war in Europe uh, that is affecting the global economy. But at the same time, we have a strategy that will make a difference. The legislation that we were talking about, lowering the cost of prescription drugs, lowering the cost of energy, lowering the federal deficit, that would make a real difference. And you have all 50 Democrats on board for that? Because you didn't last time you tried parts of this bill. Look, uh, nothing is uh, no, nothing is done until it's done. We're hopeful. We're working hard. We got our head down, and we're going to try to get something done. So, a number of um, economists. I want to put up a, a chart of inflation here for our audience to see, um, measured by the Consumer Price Index. So, from the beginning of the pandemic through now, and as you can see, the tick up began a good year before the war in Ukraine began. A number of economists, including at the San Francisco Fed, have said that the tremendous fiscal spending that went underway, the $6 trillion in two years, did add to that, including, as you can see right on there, the $2 trillion uh, that the Biden administration pushed through in the spring of, of 2021. So when people look at that and they say, well, the White House told us why, that inflation would be transitory. 
The White House told us we could go through with this kind of spending and we'd be fine, even when Democrats within your own party were warning this would add to inflation. How do you win credibility here to the public and say this time we're not wrong? Well, it, you just have to look around the world today to recognize that the two principal drivers of inflation are the pandemic and Putin. We're seeing this everywhere. It is a global phenomenon. As I mentioned, in the UK, inflation's hit 9%. Right, in but Europe, the point is those are the things you can't control. I'm talking about the things you can. Absolutely. So and how we, do you win that credibility back? Well, if we look at the things that we can control, we win credibility by taking action. This president is acting. This president galvanized the global community to do a historic release of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, a million barrels a day. Leading oil market analysts this week said that action was single-handedly responsible for keeping oil prices from going up even further. Right, we are going to take action. We're going to prioritize. We're going to make clear that tackling inflation is our top economic priority. One of the things that you do have control over at the executive is the approach on tariffs. Treasury Secretary Yellen told me back in November, she acknowledged that the Trump era China tariffs do add to inflation domestically here. The president was asked about this yesterday and said, uh, we are still in the process of making up my mind. If inflation is the number one priority, why are you dragging out this decision? Well, I'll, I'll let the president's words speak for himself. Uh, we're looking closely at it, and I anticipate the president will have more to say on that issue in the coming weeks. But just to be very clear, over the course of the last couple of months, this is an issue about our supply chains and about getting goods to the United States in a way that is effective and cheap. And the president has been incredibly focused on that. Well, we will continue to track it. Thank you very much, Brian Deese, for coming in. Thank you. There are just 12 people who get to vote on whether to adjust interest rates and by how much. The members of the Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee. Loretta Mester is one of those people, and she joins us from Philadelphia this morning. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. Glad to be with you. Glad to have you back. Uh, you know, this sustained high inflation continues to surprise uh, Federal Reserve officials. Chair, German, uh, Jer Jerome Powell, excuse me, said as much this week. And that's why he said there was this unusually large interest rate increase of 75 basis points. He expects another similar one um, in, in another few weeks. What would alter that plan for you? Well, what we're looking at is trying to get our interest rates up to a more normal level so that we can stem some of the oversized demand momentum in the economy and bring it back down so that we can relieve some of those inflationary pressures. So we're going to be looking for the month-to-month -month changes in inflation rates to get some really good evidence on whether we've seen inflation first stabilize and then begin to move back down. It is going to take you know, a while to get inflation back down to 2%. But what we're looking for is that we can see some moderation in demand, which has been incredibly strong, bringing it back in alignment with supply side, which of course, as you know, has been constrained, alleviating some of that price pressures, getting inflation moving back down and on a sustainable path back to 2%, which is our inflation goal. So that's what we're gonna be looking at is what's going on in the monthly numbers. And frankly, the May CPI report basically was bad across the board in terms of we didn't really see inflation stabilize. In fact, some of the measures actually looked worse in May than in April. And so that was part of the calculus of why uh, moving up at a slightly higher than um, mm -hmm. normal rate increase happened at our meeting last week. Well, in one person did um, 
dissent, Esther George of the Kansas City Fed. She said she thought the Fed was moving by too much and too fast. She argued significant and abrupt changes can be unsettling to households and small businesses. Why is she wrong? And are you confident these dramatic hikes won't trigger a recession? Right. Well, I would never say Esther's wrong. It's an alternative view. Um, we had signaled that we thought 50 would be um, appropriate, but then we got new data. And we've also said that we really need to be nimble in this period of uncertainty. And when we see data moving in the wrong direction or continuing to move in the wrong direction and information that inflation expectations, not in the short run, but even in the longer run are moving up, that was what was convincing to me that it was appropriate to move at a bigger clip than we had signaled early on. And you but would again, expect that next really time. What we're going to be looking at is, is demand moderating and coming better in line with supply? And is inflation turning back down? That's going to be key here. We need to see compelling evidence that inflation is beginning to move back down towards our goal. Mm -hmm. Well, the Treasury Secretary, uh, Janet Yellen, you know her from her time when she was uh, running the Federal Reserve. She said this morning the economy will slow. How much are you expecting it to slow? Are you predicting a recession? So I'm not predicting a recession. If you look at the forecasts that were submitted and released um, earlier this week of all the participants in the FOMC meeting, you'll see that we do have growth slowing. Um, to a little bit below trend growth. And we do have the unemployment rate moving up um, a little bit. And that's okay, right? It, it's sort of, we wanna see some slowing in demand to get it in better line with supply. But there's other things that are gonna be happening later in the year too. For example, we've already seen uh, households really shifting some of their spending rather than spending on goods, which really was the bulk of spending coming out of the pandemic, height of the pandemic when mm -hmm. the economy reopened into more services. That's gonna help alleviate some of the upward pressure on goods prices. So other parts of the economy will be moving as well as what we're doing on interest rates. We've already seen interest rates have an effect in the housing sector, where the housing sector is pulling back from the heights that it, that it had seen. So we wanna see some moderation demand, right? What we're gonna be navigating though is setting our policy rates, our interest rates so that we can maintain a healthy economy and healthy labor markets as we go through this period. But there's a lot of uncertainty out there. and We're going to have to be very careful and nimble in how we approach um, this pulling back of this very accommodative right. monetary policy that's something more appropriate to the economy. Right. The Fed chair, though, was pretty uh, clear that there are things that are beyond your control. Monetary policy can't solve this problem. He said, Gas prices are beyond your control. The war in Ukraine, COVID. So for people at home, does that mean they should assume their food and energy costs are going to stay high for the next year or two? So I, I agree with Chair Powell, right? The way monetary policy works is on the demand side of the economy. We can slow some of that demand that's way above where the supply currently is. But we should expect to see some moderation and some improvement on the supply side as we go forward as well. Highly uncertain, I agree. Monetary policy can't control that. What we can do is really do what we can with our tools to get this inflation problem. And as you said, it's at a 40-year high. We've got to get monetary policy in a good place to combat that excessive demand and the excessive 
demand that really is driving price pressures. That's what we can do with our tools. And we're committed to doing that and keeping inflation moving it down back to 2%. But the reason it'll take a while is because we need to have that supply right. side come back into better balance as well. And that's why it isn't going to be immediate that we see right. 2% inflation. It will take a couple of years, but it'll be moving down. A couple of years. I mean, the other thing that's hard to measure is just people's confidence, right? Um, and when they look at uh, being told uh, by the administration, by the Fed, that inflation was transitory, they can say people were wrong, right? The officials got it wrong. Um, Gary Cohn, former president of Goldman Sachs, formerly Trump economic advisor, said uh, the Fed was clearly behind the curve, clearly late in raising rates. And now the runway for a soft landing is now much shorter and narrower. You're not predicting recession, but you've got to acknowledge that there have been missteps and the risk is rising. The recession risks are going up, partly because monetary policy could have pivoted a little earlier than it did. We're doing that now by moving interest rates up. But of course, there's a lot of other things going on as well. The Ukraine situation, which is a tragedy, right, has really you know, led to that high oil prices that everyone's feeling the brunt of and high gasoline prices. So other things were moving on the supply side as well. No doubt, supply conditions remain constrained longer than I think anyone thought. The mm -hmm. businesses that we talked to in the Cleveland district all thought that there would be meaningful improvement. Um, even as you know, as early as last year, we didn't get that. Now they don't see meaningful improvement until farther, much farther out. So again, other things are going on. Right. What I want to say, though, is we at the Fed are very committed to using the tools at our disposal mm -hmm. right, to bring this inflation under control and getting it back to 2%. It is the number one challenge in the economy now. It is. And I believe it's necessary to do that if we want to sustain healthy right. labor markets. I don't see this as a okay. trade-off at all. Okay. Well, it, it's a it's a huge economic challenge and a political one. We'll continue covering it here. Thank you, uh, Loretta Mester. We'll be back in a moment. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Today is Juneteenth, a federal holiday marking the abolition of slavery and African-American freedom. June 19, 1865 was when the last enslaved people in Texas received word of their freedom more than two years after President Abraham Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation. For more, we'd like to turn to CBS News racial justice contributor Dr. Ibram Kendi, who is also the author of two new books, How to Raise an Anti-Racist and Goodnight Racism. Good morning. Happy Father's Day, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> I know you have um, a six-year-old daughter. So I wonder, how are you going to teach her what this holiday is? 
Well, I'm actually going to teach her that it's Freedom Day and that throughout this nation's history, there's been two perspectives on freedom, really two fights for freedom. Uh, enslaved people were fighting for freedom from slavery and enslavers were, were fighting for the freedom to enslave. And in many ways, that sort of contrast still exists today. There are people who are fighting for freedom from assault rifles, freedom from poverty, freedom from exploitation. And there are others who are fighting for freedom to exploit, freedom to have guns, freedom to maintain inequality. So I, I really want to get her to understand that there are multiple kinds of freedom and she should be fighting for and joining with those who are fighting for freedom from something like slavery. So this concept gets at sort of the core of, of what so many of your books are about when you say anti-racist. And I just want to be clear for people who are listening. You do not teach critical race theory or CRT, which has become very politicized. Um, you focus on this idea of anti-racism. How do you explain to people at home the difference? And for those who say this might be too advanced for a child, how do you how do you respond? Well, the, the difference is critical race theory is an anti-racist sort of theory. But I'm thinking about something, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to get the American people to really understand that there's there's inequality, uh, and the cause of that inequality is not what's wrong with, let's say, black people. It's what's wrong with, with bad policies. And the way kids can understand it is kids understand bad rules. Uh, my daughter understands what's not fair. And we can teach children that there's bad rules in society. There are things that are not fair in society. And that's why, let's say, black people have less. It's not because they are less. Mm -hmm. You. Um so I think for people at home who are trying to understand the concept, it's interesting because you basically are arguing being colorblind is not a virtue. For so long, people were taught, be blind to color. Um, you're saying acknowledging this is important because if you ignore it, it allows racism to survive. Is that right? It does, and unfortunately, we, we as parents and, and teachers and caregivers of, of children and just, you know, adults want to believe that, but unfortunately, it's just not true. I mean, studies show that as early as three years old, our kids have an adult-like concept of race. They're not only seeing color, but they're attaching it to qualities like smartness, like honesty. And so we have to share with our children, yes, there are all these different colors, but they don't mean anything, just like a book cover doesn't mean anything. You literally have to open the book and you have to open someone's heart to see who they and what they truly are. You know, um, Condoleezza Rice, the former Secretary of State, was on this program uh, around this time last year. And I was reading her remarks and she said, when it comes to teaching about race, she wants children to be taught about America's birth defect of racism, but also forward progress on its issues. She said, I don't want this to be black against white, my weaponization of my identity against yours. Do you see that weaponization happening? Because there is fear of that. I actually think that that weaponization can happen, but that's why, for instance, I talk about the clash between racism and anti-racism, mm -hmm. as opposed to black and white. And I also think it's important for us to understand what I call in my work racist progress, how over time, let's take voter suppression policies, have become more sophisticated over time. 
And, and so if we're not recognizing both racial progress and racist progress, then we're going to be missing the ways in which racism and why racism is persisting and why inequality is persisting. You know, one of the things that we are tracking right now in this country um, is this threat of domestic extremism. And just this week, um, the 18-year-old white man who killed 10 black people at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, uh, made an appearance in federal court. He apologized to his parents, um, but explained his motivation as being about preventing the elimination of the white race. How do parents prevent their child from being radicalized like that? I mean, that sounds like online recruitment for terrorism or something. It is, and that's a huge, huge problem. I mean, the, the number of particularly white male teens who are being recruited in multiplayer video games, online, through memes, through direct messages, you know, is, 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 is really high. And the way that we protect our kids from that is ensure they can identify white supremacist ideology. And the way, you, the way they can identify white supremacist ideology is to teach them about it. There's no way they're going to be able to protect themselves from it. Just like the, they can't protect themselves mm -hmm. from cars. They have to understand to look both ways, whether they're teenagers or young people, so they won't get harmed. Dr. Kennedy, uh, thank you very much. Good luck with the books. And uh, happy Father's Day again. Thank you. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. And a reminder that you can set your DVR if you can't watch the full show. And to all the dads out there, including my dad, my father-in-law, and my husband, happy Father's Day. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, former FDA commissioner and current Pfizer board member, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. National Economic Council Director Brian Deese, Cleveland Federal Reserve Bank President Loretta Mester, and CBS News racial justice contributor Ibram Kendi. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation's also on our digital network, CBSN, at 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.